You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday. We are live. We have so much to talk about. An action-packed day. Price action in almost every single market. Soon, we'll be joined uh, by a pre-recorded message from our CEO and co-founder, Rao Pal, uh, with our senior editor, Ash Bennington. But first, I'm here hosting the show with Weston Nakamura. Weston, what did you make of this price action where almost every single asset class money flooded out instead of going in. Almost everything was in the red, most conspicuously crypto. Uh, what did you make? Just walk us through how you saw the day in terms of the different asset classes. Uh, it was certainly a wild day. I'll get to crypto um, you know, in a minute. But um, yeah, so I mean, from the equity market, you know, we saw this pretty sharp sell-off uh, going into cash open in the US following uh, you know, a weak market in Asia as well as in Europe. This is all following, uh, you know, uh, crypto sell-off and all that. Um, and then you actually ended uh, the day not as bad as uh, as it was. Um, we actually saw the SOX index, um, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index, uh, up uh, about one and a quarter percent. Um, commodities got hit. Crude got hit pretty hard um, across the board. Um, we had a little bit of a bid in gold um, that seems to have petered out a little bit as well. Um, and then, I mean... For the most part, it just seemed like uh, just a ton of, you know, scrambling around uh, cross asset, not really, you know, looking at each other, not really knowing what to make of it. And then you have tech and actually ending up in the green. Yeah, globally, uh, equities were very weak today. As you said, Asian stocks opened uh, in the red and that, that we saw that in Europe as well. The Nasdaq really led the way down, starting, as you said, at cash open 930 in the morning, uh, down about 2%, but it ended the day almost flat on the day. So it really recovered those losses. Um, you know, Weston, this is a really topsy-turvy market. Just break us down how you saw the interplay between those uh, plummeting equity markets, or not plummeting, but but swooning, let's say, and the, the absolutely stunning eye-popping crash in crypto. Um, you know, it, it, it's a really baffling. Uh, just walk us through that. Yeah, just to, uh, you know, let's sum it up really quick. First of all, um, what I forgot to mention too was that today was um, uh, May VIX futures expiry at the open as well, so that certainly didn't uh, you know um, help in terms of uh, adding to the confusion. But um, yeah, around you know nine nine fifteen a.m. Eastern or so, uh, you saw this massive like three hundred million dollar notional worth of uh, Bitcoin futures that just hit the bid, um, for which there was no bid until uh, about twenty four percent lower, um, and you saw this broad-based indiscriminate crypto uh, crash that pulled down risk assets. Uh, you saw a um, inverse bid in gold at that time. And again, that was just a very, very short-lived sort of, um, you know, an inverse move. Um, so, you know, that that seemed to have kind of scared people thinking like, okay, crypto has become institutional to the point where it's actually pulling down traditional assets or it's impacting traditional assets. 
Um, and now we're looking at, you know, the, the, the markets that are basically get clawing their way back to flat and, you know, as if it were just another day. If you actually looked at the crypto market from uh, um, midnight EST, EST to now, they're basically flat, you know, so you wouldn't have noticed any of this. Yeah, it really is shocking how much we've recovered. Just for people at home who aren't following the crypto markets, Bitcoin began uh, the day, let's say, at about 45,000, and it briefly flirted with 30,000. So really hundreds of billions of dollars incinerated in a few hours, if not actually a few minutes, as you said, um, at, at around 9 a.m. this morning. Ethereum also dipping below 2,000. A few days ago, that was unthinkable. Now it's at about 27, 2,800. Um, Ethereum so, had a had a down forty percent move at one point and on intraday. So yeah, it really is shocking. So um, yeah. our our CEO and co-founder Rao wanted to uh, help people make sense of this. As as a lot of people know, he's been very constructive on this space, and this is can be quite a little bit of a scary time. So he couldn't actually join us on the daily briefing live. He wanted to, but he pre-recorded a dispatch that he uh, filmed with Ash, just so people can sort of wrap their heads around this sell-off and then this quite surprising recovery. So. Uh, with that, let's go to Rao's pre-recorded message with Ash Bennington. It's 2.30 p.m. on the East Coast. Volatility in digital asset markets today. I'm joined by CEO and co-founder Rao Pal. Rao, what's happening? What does it mean? And how does it influence your larger thesis? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's been a hell of a market. Really, there's no real news. There's a bit of news out of China that banks won't be able to onboard people into crypto. And there's been a Elon Musk messing around with the market, but there's nothing really. The Bitcoin price had been topping for a while, just, just felt heavy and it had been underperforming Ether as we know. And then it started over the weekend and spilled down into a total meltdown. And a feature of these crypto markets is excessive leverage, particularly in Asia. Um, so if you see where a lot of the liquidations happen, they happen on the Asian exchanges where Asian traders tend to use a lot more leverage than they do in, in the Western world. So as price action starts pushing lower, it starts liquidating lots and lots of positions. So that's really what we saw. We saw a massive liquidation. I mean, Ethereum saw a liquidation of the entire sharp up move that we saw. And it all came, you know, at one point today when I was up this morning, Ethereum was down 42% on the day. Now, if that was the stock market, this would be one of the most, the biggest, most scary crashes of all time. But this is the crypto market. This is the crypto market that is a 65 to 100 vol asset. And I've explained endlessly that you should always expect a 50% correction. And if you get away for less, you should be happy. Mm. Um, you know, we've had the 2017 bull run as a great example, had something like six or seven. 35% corrections. Now, the 50% correction that we've seen in Ethereum and Bitcoin is larger than most, but again, not unusual in a bull market, and particularly not in the kind of spike down volumes. This wasn't a crunching, disgusting, long grinding bear market. This was a panic liquidation. And that always leads me to what do you do about this? What should you do? Well, the first rule, and I've explained it time and time again, is don't use leverage. So then if you didn't use leverage and you were in ETH this year, for example, you're still up 250%, even at the bottom of the sell-off. It doesn't matter that much because these things go up exponentially and they correct sharply, but they still are on this exponential rise. So you should 
be compensated by the returns for the risk that you're taking, i.e. a 50% pullback. And that seems to be the case, both Bitcoin and Ethereum still remain up on the year, although you know, Bitcoin's had more of a kind of topping pattern over a period of time. Has anything changed for me? Nothing. What are the, where are the, where's the flow of funds? Well, interesting enough, the first movers in the institutional space are in. And we've actually been lacking, I've certainly been lacking the phone calls of, okay, I'm going to put capital to work today. The conversations I've been having with a lot of the bigger institutions is, yes, we've agreed we need to do this. We need to clear our paperwork with Fidelity or Coinbase or whoever it is. We need to start setting up accounts. We need to figure it out. We need to get our risk systems in place. So that wall of money that I refer to is still there. I got, I don't know, five phone calls from pretty famous investors today who were all like, well, I'm just buying the dip. One of them, who's a, who's a, a good friend, who's a very well-known, um, very large hedge fund manager, I said, so what do you think about the sell-off? He went, his exact words were, what the fuck do I care? <laughs> and, and the reason being is because people understand in this space, if your time horizon is multi-years, then you can't be overly concerned about the path that it takes. So what I want to do is go through some of the technical charts that give me comfort to show why I don't think it was that big an event, even though it felt terrible. So here's the basic chart of Bitcoin on a log chart. Remember, we need to use log charts in these assets because they're exponential assets. And here's the trend line, and Bitcoin beautifully kissed the trend line. So now you would say Bitcoin has gone back to trend and is now free to rise higher. I also love to use regression lines, which give you one and two standard deviations uh, versus a trend. This is the regression of Bitcoin from the low in March. And what it did was actually it broke through it, but bounced back above the two standard deviations oversold. Bitcoin's about as oversold as it's ever been. Um, it's certainly as oversold as it was in March. And if you were to be able to deploy capital in this market and you still believe in the long-term story, which I do, then this would be the time you'd be buying and not selling. And that's a typical feature of markets like this. You need to be buying over time, looking for these sell-offs to give you an advantage to add in. Ethereum was even more dramatic today. There was a huge liquidation as the entire bull run from April got unwound in one day. But if you can see the little tick on the right, I mean, it hit below 2,000 and it's currently at about 2,800. So, I mean, that's a 40% rise from the low, which alone would be a good year in the S&P. Um, now, it's still down significantly, about 20% today. But again, it bounced here off the 200-day moving average and also off its small trend line from the December low. And again, these are the kinds of signals that tell you that the market reached the oversold point and has probably finalized where it needed to go to on the downside to flush out the excesses leverage and the speculative hubris that sometimes builds up in assets like this. Don't forget, network effect assets are driven by behavior a lot of the time. And so human behavior tends to be quite volatile. So these assets are always volatile and tend to do stuff like this. Ethereum, with its regression channel on the log chart, actually got less oversold, only one standard deviation, and it's currently resting on its average trend line since the bull market started in March. So we got oversold um, first thing this morning, uh, US hours, and we're now back to 
average line. And we should be, again, looking to base from here and start building a pattern where we can start rising. Another way of looking at it is how oversold did it get? It got incredibly oversold that the RSI hit the equal lowest level that it's done since um, March. And those levels have always seen bounces. So again, this is the kind of area you'd be looking for to looking to add on the dip. And my final killer chart for you is here's the Bitcoin price now versus the Bitcoin price in the 2013 bull run. It is almost an exact fit. And that suggests that these kind of pullbacks, and if this pattern continues to repeat, there's no guarantee, then it's going to tell us that we've got the bulk of the rise ahead of us. Mm. At this point in 2013, it actually rose 10x. Now, could this correction last a bit longer? For sure. Could we reach a new low? For sure. But you can see the risk reward is balancing in the favor of this thing now basing and then rising over time. I'm not showing you the chart, but I've also got a chart of Ethereum versus the Bitcoin bull market of 2017. It's roughly the same thing. And these charts are telling us that something like 400,000 is the upside in Bitcoin and 20,000 plus in Ethereum. I think they may even be overshot in this bull market, but that's the size of the risk and the opportunity here. If there's a 10x upside and a 50% downside, well, that's a hell of a risk reward. So that's why markets like this, they're hard. They make everybody feel terrible, but they also shake out some of the bad, weak protocol coins, some of the bad DeFi projects. They shake out people who have taken too much leverage and shouldn't be doing it. And what it allows people who are patient capital is to accumulate at the right prices. Yeah. You know, you point there to 2013. I was reading some analysis from Wrecked Capital looking at 2017, a series of retracements there uh, in the 30 to 40% range. In fact, in 2017, during the bull market cycle, five major retracements that deep. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Mike, I, I wanted to come on quickly just to say to everybody, because I know a lot of people follow my thought process on this, is I think this is normal. It's ugly. If you can take advantage of it, and, and add, then I would be suggesting that might be a good thing to do. And again, it's a good lesson in why not to use leverage and just be calm, think of the long term and carry on. Ralph, final question for you. You mentioned time horizons. You've talked about your thesis. One more time, give us a sense of the time horizon you're looking at now and why that's significant here. So I think if we look at the previous bull cycles in crypto that after the halving occurs, they tend to go on for about 18 months, and that would take us into something like December to March of next year to complete the, the move. And that kind of makes sense to me. That's what the price structure on the charts looks like. It's the previous examples. So for the bulk of the sharp move, that's what I'm looking for, that time horizon. It could change because of institutional adoption. It could elongate. Um, I think that's possible too. I don't think it's going to undershoot. Um, and it probably may even overshoot in price because, let's say, ETFs, if they come. Um, my overall thesis is much bigger. It's a five to 10-year bet that this space is going to go from $2 trillion to $200 trillion. That's the whole digital asset space. And that's 100x. So 50% volatility, I'll take that all day for 100x. That's a, that's a um, 500 to 1 risk reward.
You don't get those ever. Yeah. Ralph, thanks for joining us. Thanks for providing that context. Thanks for watching, everyone. Stay safe out there. Yeah, and take care, everybody. I understand it's been a bad day for many, but keep calm and carry on. Wow. Uh, bold words from Rao. Thank you, Rao, for sharing that message. Weston, Rao's making the case that if you believe in the long-term trend, this pullback, it's really not going to matter in the long term, and that he is adding on to dips. What do you make of this view, and what is your view? Yeah, well, what he's saying is nothing has changed except the price. So if you're if you if you're bullish and nothing has fundamentally changed about if the reason that you're bullish has not changed and the only thing that's changed is that the price has just fallen significantly, um, it may be a great time for you to go long. Uh, if not, you know all else equal, because if not now, when? Right. So you can always, if it drops another twenty percent, you know you can scale in. You don't have to. You don't have to just move. You know your your entire allocation in one click. In fact, if you do that, you're just gambling on moments on time. But these sort of uh, crashes historically are, are flash crashes. You know, and and how many times are you going to say, oh, I wish it was at whatever it was. You know, twenty percent ago. You're getting that opportunity now. If nothing else changed. You know, your, your view shouldn't, um, if your view hasn't changed and, and nothing about the, the asset has fundamentally changed, except for the price, I mean, the, you it's kind of, it would be almost irresponsible not to take advantage. Yeah, I always think of the uh, Warren Buffett quote that if you buy a house and then the next day someone offers you 40% less for that house, are you going to sell your house just because you got quoted a lower price? Likewise, if you're bullish on Bitcoin and it goes down 40%, you would probably be inclined to buy, not sell. So that's the key phrase. Uh, nothing has changed. And as you say, that's exactly what um, Raul said. Weston, what did you make about Raul's point about the volatility in the asset class, where the volatility is from 65 yeah. to 100? Yeah, what did, you, what did you make of that? Okay, so, so he, uh, you know, this is not just Raul. I've, I've heard this a few times uh, being said throughout the day today. You know, this is a 70 vol asset, 80 vol, whatever it is. Um, what what that means is that th this is what forget what the volatility is. This is what freely trading markets look like. Okay, we haven't seen what freely you know freely trading markets look like for I don't know a decade or so. This is what markets look like when you don't have global central banks artificially suppressing volatility, interventionist central banks buying every dip, putting a safety net net under every single you know, um, slight tremor or taper tantrum or whatever it may be, this is what happens. If you let free markets play out and there is value in the asset and others see there's value in the asset, then the asset will rebound itself, as you saw with Ethereum going down 40% and then basically rebounding right back. That is the free market um, put, if you will, not a Fed put. There's no, there's no Chairman Powell that needs to come out and announce something for you to put your capital to work. Free markets will do that. That was on display today. 70 vol assets don't exist except for here, and this is what 70 vol asset behaves like. And if there is, um, you know, a, a value proposition behind it, you will see investors take advantage of it. Definitely, as one of our colleagues here at Real Vision said to me today, volatility 
is one hell of a drug. And there are some people perhaps who uh, want, want to launch a drug war. Some people to play devil's advocate, Weston, who would say, hey, we had this Wild West before the Federal Reserve. What we had was banking panics. We had deflation. We had banks issuing their own currency. You know, one thinks of this whole, uh, uh, you know, uh, a Dave Portnoy launching Safe Moon, someone launching Hum Rockets, someone else launching, you know, all these coins new every day, perhaps would remind you of the uh, wild west of, of banking before the Federal Reserve. What would you say, Weston, to people who say, hey, uh, you know, all this freedom comes at a cost and there's some real, there's some real harm there? Well, look, uh, if you're talking about regulations and all that, I think that there's absolutely a place for proper regulations. There should, they need to be smart, they need to be tailored, or they need to be, you know, and all that. I think that, you know, for that system, what before, so pre-Federal Reserve, when you're getting a financial crisis at once every, well, you know, like a few years, then fine. Um, and, you know, when you need to have uh, trust in banking um, systems, I, I get all of that. But what we're talking about now is this third mandate and markets down, risk off. That is not markets broken. Markets broken is markets unconditionally higher. That's what markets broken is. So I would suggest that perhaps um, if you want to stick with your dual mandate, you stick with your dual mandate. If you want to have this third mandate that you've adopted where asset prices can never go down for a certain cohort of investors, um, just come out and say it, you know, like, and, and as they have. And in that case, and if that's the case, there really is no real market. Uh, anymore when you have a unlimited uh, non-economic um, you know actor in the in the market uh, distorting prices and furthermore that other investors perceive them to be there whether or not they're there that that's that is not a a functioning market at all um, what you saw today was functioning markets even not functioning platforms but functioning markets yeah let, let's get into those non-functioning platforms so uh, I've got an article in front of me today Crypto investors fume as world's biggest platforms are disrupted. So Coinbase uh, reportedly had partial outages, although they did later fix the issue. Binance, another exchange, temporarily disabled Ethereum withdrawals. So what do you make of these quite sizable dislocations and disturbances within the crypto market? I think this is fantastic for the Robinhood IPO. Um, <laughs> because uh, that they have... They actually were okay today. So I I, I have um I, I checked down detector. Um anyone who doesn't know what that is, um it's, it's like I think it's like three dollars for a subscription for it, but you basically get all, anything that's down. It's not just like uh brokerage platforms, all that, it's anything. It's it's Amazon Web Services if that's down. And then you can see people's complaints. And you could actually look at the geographic region in where there's like clusters of them. So what I saw was when the mark when basically when 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 the crypto market just plummeted. Um, you know, around nine, nine-ish, you know, uh, Eastern. Uh, all right, so Coinbase is down in the U.S. and in the EU. I'm based in Japan. I'm based in Tokyo. I have Coinbase accounts, and I probably shouldn't say, but I have, I have U.S. accounts. I have Japan accounts. I could get into my Japan accounts. I could not get into Coinbase. So Binance, EU down. Asia and U.S. were okay. Uh, Kraken uh, hit EU hard. U.S. was also affected, but not nearly as widespread. Gemini hit U.S. and EU little. Point is... Asia bought the, that dip, especially on Ethereum. Ethereum right at 200,000 yen. You can look at the chart, it's right spot there um, because that was the only um, market or that was the only region that was not affected by um, these 
delays these, you know, what whatever the hell that it is that they're they're doing, right? There's, I mean, Coinbase, both Coinbase and Kraken were saying reporting delays in, you know, Ethereum ERC twenty withdrawals and, and this and that, and then they also froze the um the the, the leverage products and so um and then in a, in a, on top of all that, the deli goes down. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, but uh, but yeah, I think that this is a wake up call for um these platforms to get their shit together because just because the e-trades, the Robin Hoods, the, the Schwabs and of the equity world um, are doing, you know, have, have outages, um, it doesn't make it okay. In fact, it makes it absolutely unacceptable, um, especially coming from the narrative or the, the you know, like, I guess the, the marketing narrative of, of crypto of how you are not, you know, you are you are free to transact, you are free to trade from anywhere in the world. You know, it's totally totally autonomous and and this and that. And if you're at, the, at if you're really though at the the whim of you know these these companies that are just hooked up to, to like AWS, Amazon Web Services, um, services, then I mean it's kind of kind of centralized um, IT. You know, so um, it's a it's a risk to to consider. Yeah, most exchanges I think are. Uh, I, I just have heard this are hooked up to Amazon Web Services. So if there's a crash there, if there's a crash on most crypto exchanges, which is, as you would imply, not exactly decentralized. Weston, you said that there was a strong bid from Asia on the dip. I'm also hearing uh, from a few a few variety of sources that the institutional bid was really present today, that hedge funds were buying. I'm also hearing a few university endowments decided to pull the trigger on the lows today. So you really did see some strength there. Weston, I want to ask you, you said, going back to Asia, on the uh, Ethereum 2,000, excuse me, 200,000 yen um, for, for Ethereum, that was really where you saw extreme support. That brings us to a point that I think is so important to, for people to understand, which is that crypto is denominated in almost every single currency worldwide, and it's also denominated in each other. So, you know, the oil, the vast majority of uh, every barrel of oil is denominated in U.S. dollars, um, so there's not a huge arbitrage arbitrage between like you know WTI WTI in dollars versus WTI in the peso, let's say. But the Bitcoin to U.S. dollar, that's a trade. Bitcoin to euro, Bitcoin to Japanese yen, Bitcoin to the Chinese yuan, to the Mexican peso, to everything. And then there's Bitcoin to Ethereum. There's Bitcoin to everything. There's Bitcoin to even you know come rocket. So there's this huge um, um, you know arbitrage opportunities, and I think that's why a lot of institutional players are really excited about the space but that also lends itself to the disruptions that we saw today, which for the average retail client is perhaps, uh, you know, not great. Yeah, um, well, so I was looking for at one point, um, so I look at uh, BTC, JPY, BTC, uh, USD. Um, first of all, JPY, I say this all the time. Yeah, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I say this all the time. So people on the exchange are sick of me hearing this, are sick of hearing this from me. But uh, just as you said, Bitcoin is not a U.S. asset, just like oil is not a U.S. asset, just like gold is not a U.S. asset. Now, those are denominated in USD. Yes, I understand that. Bitcoin is not denominated in USD. It's BTC fiat, and, and it's, it's not an American asset. So people need to get that out of their head. And if you actually look at BTC JPY, you'll be a hell of a lot more, uh, like the levels will make a hell of a lot more sense. Like they just move on round numbers. So... 6 million yen, 5.5 million yen, 5.2 million yen, 5 million yen. If you look at the same exact charts, but you just denominated BTC JPY, 
you will see exact 100,000 uh, yen increments in which they basically, you know, um, it, 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 will, it will break a level, it'll pause, it'll break a level, it'll pause, it'll reverse, it'll hit, you know, 6 million resistance, 5 million resistance, so on and so forth. Um, so so that's, that's the first thing. Second thing is, as you were saying, in terms of the ARB, there was a moment today where I was looking at it. So BTC JPY and BTC USD basically trade more or less the, the, the same exact percent for percent. There was a like a 4.3% differential between BTC USD and BTC uh, JPY today. And and it's it's not like there was dollar yen that that was trading, you know, that that a 4.3% um, move either, right? So that would make sense, but that's not the case. There was just uh, a lot of we'll just call them inefficient markets um, and a ton of ARB opportunities. Now, I obviously don't have the infrastructure to um, take advantage of that, but um, and that ARB closed up pretty quickly. But I've never seen a, like spreads like that before, and and I would say that that's more much definitely much more of a function of the outages and the regional outages um, and and where things were working and where things were not. Um, that, that caused a lot of that. Um, yeah, and that is why uh, there's so much opportunity in there for those relative value arbitrage plays that they're really not available in the cap traditional capital markets anymore. You know, now one thinks of the relative value plays, you, you buy some call on Delta Airlines and you short some future on, on American Airlines. I'm just making that up, by the way. And that's sort of thought, you know, you, you're picking pennies up in front of a steamroller, but in the crypto world, it's kind of like you're picking up nickels and, and dimes and quarters on a, on a highway with no cars in sight. So, uh, Weston, what, what I want to ask you is, um, you know, in this Ethereum world, uh, which is, sorry, just another point, which is, you know, you hear some coins on some exchanges going for $100 and then other ones are going on $80. So it's, the word arbitrage is, is honestly not paying, it's just, it's just so simple. Um, and, you know, those trades used to be in traditional capital markets. I actually think that um, Bernie Madoff, used, that used to sort of be his bread and butter, but it got arbitraged away. And uh, I've, I've read that uh, some people say that um, the reason Bernie Madoff became a fraud was because that arbitrage went away. But the arbitrage is, is alive and well in crypto. Yeah, it's a good thing he's dead and not trading crypto. Um, <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. So I, I think that, um, so ARBs will close. They just will. This is, so what that is, what this also, look, there are going to be lessons and takeaways from today that won't emerge, um, you know, right away. They might they might um, hit you sometime, you know, days from now. But um, that's another thing too is that it shows actually what the, the lack of um, institutional presence. I mean, you hear so much about how much institutions have been adopting and getting into crypto and Bitcoin, especially um, as of late, and then to the point where you know. Like the the Bank of America fund managers um, survey has like Bitcoin as the most um, overweight or or the the the, the biggest um, like bubble asset uh, class and all that right. So it sounds like there's a lot of institutional uh, money in there, and it seems like there is. The behavior is you know there's uh, FX open at seven a.m. Or, or six a.m. you know Japan time. There's like you know futures open. You start seeing moves at you know um, in in crypto and all that kind of thing. Um, you see more correlation with with the, with the assets. But this sort, these sort of spreads, like a four percent spread on on BTC JPY versus BTC USD, um, that it that just shows that there's actually a a, a lack of institutional firepower behind there. Um, it 
you know, um, the the HFT guys or the yeah, like the you know the 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 ARBs and the high frequency and yep. um and and that whole infrastructure is just is is just not there yet. Um, and I wouldn't expect it there there to be because we're not working on traditional rails, right? We're not working on the traditional legacy system of um, you know settlement trading, you know execution, clearing, clearing, settling, allocations, and all that kind of thing, right? So. Yeah, high frequency HFT being high frequency trading, not to be confused with NFT, non-fungible token, not to be confused with <laughs> NFP, non-farm payroll in the labor market. So we, you know, it's a very complicated game, the, the game that you and I play, Weston. But just to go on um, the the uh, Bank of America's fund survey, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So last for, for the month of April, they conducted this report and they interview all these fund managers, these these investment managers, and they said, "What do you think is the most crowded trade?" And they said, "Long technology." Now they said long technology. 27% of the people interviewed said that the most crowded trade is long Bitcoin. And this is not, uh, you know, uh, Twitter for, this is not Bitcoin Twitter. This is institutional money managers. Yeah, well, so this is, um, what, 200 institutional, um, this is 200 buy side hedge funds and, and institutions. I think it's like 600 mil, uh, billion uh, combined AUM. This, first of all, so, this is actually a, a, a nice snapshot of where the institutional, um, at least sentiment or what they say, um, sits. So this was the first month since um, February 2020, um, since COVID, in which COVID was not the number one tail risk. The number one tail risk was inflation. Strange, uh, strange tail risk. Um, seems like a strange tail risk because the tail risk implies that this is something that nobody would expect. And I would think that even people who are not even in the inflation camp, should inflation rear its ugly head, they're not going to be shocked and say, like, what is, what is this, like, this this CPI print? Like, this I never never occurred to me. Like, so it's kind of weird that that was the number one. The What's even weirder is the fact that um, the, okay, so the top tail risk is inflation, 35%. Expectations for above-trend growth and inflation are at all-time record highs at 69%. So you have a simultaneous expectations for above-trend inflation and the biggest tail risk being inflation. So it's kind of interesting to to square those if, if you can. Yeah, and what do you get when there's inflation? Well, there's increasing pressure on the Federal Reserve to raise rates. And what I found striking, Weston, is that last month in April, um, excuse me, um, about 10% of fund managers expected that they would, the Fed would raise interest rates in the first half of 2022, so relatively early. Um, now it's at 21%. So the, the number of fund managers who think that the Fed is basically you know, calling the Fed's bluff and saying that the Fed is going to have, have to hike interest rates uh, sooner than they are claiming, which would prick the stock market, uh, not to mention the bond market is, uh, is is rising. And that is a real threat to equity markets. So perhaps the, the weakness that we've seen in stocks is related to that. Weston, what I want to ask you about is the Federal Reserve and the tapering that they will do. So they, the Federal Reserve had their FOMC meeting today, and Tom Tom has a question about this. Um, yeah, asking they're about how the minutes think, today. Yeah, the, the, they released their minutes today. Yeah, yeah. Um, they said, how do you think employment numbers and uh, the Fed's thinking and tapering will have an impact on the crypto market. We'll get to that. But Weston, what, what I noticed uh, in the FOMC uh, minutes that were released today 
is that they noted that, quote, it might be appropriate at some point in upcoming meetings to begin discussing a plan for adjusting the pace of asset purchases. Asset purchases meaning QE all across the yield curve, not just at the absolute short end of the curve, which is the uh, federal funds rate, essentially. Um, so, so they're not thinking about thinking about raising rates or, or doing it. They're thinking, they are thinking about making a plan to taper asset purchases. And the guidance that they're giving is that they will completely stop QE three quarters after the first reduction in the uh, first pace of asset purchases. And then uh, the first increase in rates is three quarters after that. So really what they're saying is six quarters or one and a half years between a tapering and a raising of a rate. And if you do the math, you realize that the Fed would have had to tapered, started tapering months ago in order for them to have raised rates in the first half of 2022. So 21% of fund managers are not believing at all what the Federal Reserve said. Am I, am I right or am I wrong? No, that's that's apparently what that that's apparently what that that, that says, right? Um, I um, it's just so amusing. This is the last time I was on RVDV with you is you know I said the same thing. It's just very amusing that the 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 front end of the rates market does not believe a word that the Fed says when they say we are um, we are leaving policy very accommodative. Um, and we are going to, you know, one one print does not make a trend in this and that, right? First of all, that fund manager, uh, not the fund manager survey, the Fed um, minutes that came out today, that was pre um, that non-farm payrolls, massive Wall Street embarrassment level miss, um, where there was like, you know, 1 million or something that came in at 200K. And that was also not including the CPI print that came out uh, after the fact. So everything that you're, you know, talking about with like, you know, whispers of uh, potential talking about hiking sometime, you know, down the road, that was all before before any of this. Um, and which in which Powell was kind of vindicated when he was saying, look, it's, it's, it's one jobs number. Let's wait to see what happens. And then you get 200K number. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that um, I think it's going to be very interesting. Just like you said, the Fed has to you know, you have to, you can't just start hiking rates out of nowhere. You have to like talk the market into it very, very slowly and all that. And I, I don't know how they have enough time to be able to do that. If, if inflation is not transitory, you only find out that it's not transitory after the fact. After it's been a long time and inflation is, is still here, that's when you realize it's not transitory. By then it's too late, right? So I, I don't know how they're going to, it's going to be super interesting, but um, oh my God! Yeah, I, I uh, command F searched the document which I downloaded for the word transitory, and it appeared so many times. It was just like that word was just whacking me in the face. But um, Weston, I, I want to ask you about. Um, uh, they mentioned the Bank of Canada announced a reduction in their pace of asset purchases, and they noted that too. So is it is it kind of like if you're you have a lawn and you're, you notice that your neighbor trims their lawn? And they're like, oh man, they turned their lawn. Maybe, maybe I should start getting on that too. Well, the, the from what I understand, what the Bank of Canada has done, they're not really like this pioneer, like um, hawk um, central bank that they might seem to be or they might claim to be. They were basically at this limit in which, if they kept on uh, buying as much as many um, as much debt as they were, they would basically be the Bank of Japan. And nobody wants to be the Bank of Japan, even though everyone will eventually be the Bank of Japan. 
um, as they always are. You know, Bank of Japan starts the policy, and then eight to ten years later, everyone else comes in. Um, but yeah, they they were basically about to like own the own the you know the, the Canadian bond market, and you don't want to be uh, in the situation where you're Japan and you own five hundred trillion uh, yen or a half quadrillion yen worth of outstanding debt, half the nation's debt, and just just completely, you know, destroy the um, what used to be the second most liquid and active sovereign rates market in the world, um, just completely under state control. And by the way, Bank of Japan yield curve control, and I forgot to mention it to you this, the last time on RVDB, Bank of Japan instituting yield curve control means that there is yield curve control indirectly instituted on the Federal Reserve or on, on U.S. Treasuries because the Bank of Japan or because the Japanese investors are, Japan is the largest foreign creditor to the United States. Uh, Japan is a big buyer of U.S. Treasuries and they do that because there is no yield at home because Bank of Japan has artificially suppressed the yield curve and nailed and pinned the 10-year down to around zero. And that means they go overseas to the United States and they buy um, treasuries that pulls down the yield curve. And therefore, you have indirect yield curve control on the U.S. Treasury curve via the Bank of Japan. Question. I want to move on. Um, Prius Omega says that the 10-year bond yield is up, gold flat. Uh, what's the relationship between the bonds, gold, crypto and equities. Western algos traders selling gold on the yield move up while foreigners dump bonds to buy gold or recover leveraged crypto bets. And this reminds me of, and I know I'm sorry, I'm just blasting you with words, but um, uh, uh, Mario G asked, did the Bitcoin sell-off contribute to the selling in equities and commodities today? So what do you make of the correlations between the assets? It's a famous line, Weston, we've all heard it. Bitcoin is uncorrelated to the equity market. There definitely was a time when that, tr that was true. Is it still true? Um, okay, uncorrelated in what way? If fundamentally uncorrelated, fine. Yeah, Bitcoin and and the equity market. The you know Bitcoin is its own monetary system. Equities are pieces of paper that represent Apple and all that kind of thing. Not correlated in that sense. Are they price correlated? Which is what we care about because we care. Do we, do we care more about a story or do we care about the market market value of our portfolios? Probably the latter. Definitely. Um, are they correlated in that sense on the short term? Absolutely, they are. And the, they're only going to become more correlated as they become more and more adopted by institutions which hold um, the same assets. And for that matter, retail also is getting very heavily involved in uh, equities and traditional assets as well, along with holding onto um, to crypto. So when you saw the, this massive futures um, sell coming in, um, uh, Bitcoin futures coming in at like, you know, nine, nine ish, a little after 9 a.m. Eastern today. There's a reason that E-minis, you know, dipped right alongside and that gold futures, you know, moved to the upside. The, these aren't happening by coincidence. You know, it's not like there's a sudden bid for gold because of, for, for no reason. It's, it's that, and that actually showed that indeed, there might have been some of the gold weakness that's attributed to the fact that Bitcoin and uh, crypto had been stealing some some of that um, inflation hedge uh, share away. Um, and yeah, is it correlated to the S and P five hundred? The okay, the the top the top of the S and P five hundred ladder is essentially 
well, first of all, you have Tesla that's or that is long uh, this asset, and then they're of course they're going to be correlated to you know um, the uh, the equity market if if they're basically you know a, a tech heavy um, you know uh, weighting, uh, and then in addition to that, semiconductor index. There is a fundamental case for there too, right? You need semiconductor production and you need chips and all that in order to uh, have crypto activity, whatever it may be. That you know, a, a chip crunch is not is not really going to you know, um, it's not going to not impact, right? And so yeah. you get there is there is a fundamental and price uh, correlation uh, that very much exists. So when people say that it's not really correlated here's where i'll say that here's what, what i'll give you it's like, a 2018 I, talking point that was true then it's just it's just not now if you look at the regressions which i have if you correlate the daily returns i mean it's just obviously that they're i mean yeah 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 <laughs> um sorry go ahead the, the the like what the, the what i'll say is that the um you know like what i was saying before what's not correlated is the fact that this is a free market and so therefore you can have these minus Forty percent drops in the half an hour, or you know, the course of a day, and then had it rebound um, halfway back up. Even if it's down ten percent for the day, you would never notice. Never, or if it's flat on the day, you never knew knew that it was you know down. That if imagine imagine the Nasdaq fell forty percent in in like kind of like that Dow flash crash from like twenty eleven or whatever that was, um, and it like you know came right back. That that would never happen. The Nasdaq fell forty percent in ten minutes. The the like. Powell will be out right now alongside Janet Yellen, you know, um, basically hand in hand saying like, yeah, we, we, we got this, right? And still the markets will not believe them. This was um, a market capitulation. Sure. Correction, sorry, sorry, Wesson, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Wesson. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but sure. But it's, the Federal Reserve wouldn't immediately violate within that 10 minute sell off. They wouldn't violate the Federal Reserve Act and start buying the NASDAQ themselves and put it on their balance sheet. I'd say that the support to the equity market from the Fed is indirectly through the money market, through the bond funds. And by the way, Weston, that helps Bitcoin too. So uh, I, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Here's what I'll say though: um, it, it's, it's the Fed doesn't, have, you know, they don't have to explicitly say that. It's just implied. Everybody knows that there is a put. Who, who, who doesn't, who doesn't know that, right? That's why there's that's why there's excessive risk risk taking because the, the you you know that there's not gonna that they cannot let the 77 million boomers with their uh, 401ks who are about to hit retirement just get their assets sliced in half and just leave them there no like so that's not gonna happen so in order for that to not happen um, those assets cannot go down credit spreads have to be narrow. Uh, as, uh, you know, stock prices have to go forever upwards, um, and that's that's just the way things are. So, um, if crypto, you know, falls, this is why I keep saying it, that you know, if it falls, it's just it's it's going to um, the 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 natural the natural course of the markets are, are going to filter out what has a real value proposition. What's just been, you know, kind of floating with like the with the tide, and what what is actually uh, has staying power. So same thing as like you know the the dot com crash. Um, you know, you have the survivors, the Amazon, the Yahoos, um, and, and all them in the sea of rubble of whatever bullshit dot coms that are you know carcassed all over the place. So if you have 
if you have real um, a real value proposition in your coin, in your token, in your whatever it may be, there's no need to be. And I'm going to talk like take on the maximalists here. Like there is no need for you to be a fascist and go out and tell people what to and what not to buy. If you're if you're that self conscious about your product, I mean that's that's the, the message that I get, right? If you're if you are confident about your use case and all that. Say, but go ahead, buy whatever shitcoin you want to, and you will come crawling back. That to me is like the best sort of sales pitch. But like, um, let the free market decide. So, th again, I'm just gonna, I just keep coming back to this point: is that we had a very important lesson today that I don't want people to lose sight of. Is that when you know we had a plummet and we had markets correct, and even if they were down 50% and they stayed down today, that's still what a free market is behaving like. And that's okay. That's great. That's what. That's you know. That's how equity should behave. That's how you know uh, high yield credit should behave. All of, all of these like artificially supported zombie assets and all that. That they are they are not how markets behave. You got a taste of what markets are supposed to behave like today. Um, it's like a, it's like an experiment almost. Um, question. So, question. Yeah. So much there. So much there to analyze. And we're we're running out of time. But I just got to ask you a question. So. You'd agree that uh, Bitcoin is becoming increasingly correlated to traditional financial assets, such as, let's say, the S&P 500, right? Sure. Okay. And you would agree, sorry to, sorry to go all Socrates on you, but you would agree that there is a Fed put on the S&P 500 or on stocks, right? I would. So wouldn't that suggest that there is a, an emergent Fed put on Bitcoin indirectly, of course? Of course, the Fed does not want to do that, but it's just kind of a, a proxy. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, the, there, there's even a Fed put in the sense that the more that the Fed has a put, the more supportive it is of, from an ideological standpoint, of, of Bitcoin. People are, the more that they print money to support assets, the more that people flock into Bitcoin. So in, yeah. in that sense, it's a reinforcing put, or it's a, you know, I mean, I don't know what, what you want to call it. It's a, it's a hedge out of it, it's a, whatever it is, but clearly there is a connection with the Federal Reserve, and it's not just the Fed, it's ECBs, the BOJ, it's everyone's uh, collective, you know, um, abuse of their um, printing press, if you will, um, and their long-term liabilities, and, uh, you know, interest in other monetary systems. So that's, you call it a put, it's just a, yeah. seems like yeah, a yeah. reaction function to me, yeah. Sure, sure. My final point, Weston, would be, um, just explaining the correlation. I think it has to do with the wealth effect, which is when mm -hmm. your asset goes up, you feel wealthier because you are. So let's say you own Bitcoin, and when it goes down, you feel poorer because you know you are on paper. And as it, as the share of people who own Bitcoin also own stocks, that will compel them to sell their stocks as well. And right now, that's largely a psychological phenomenon, but it becomes formalized when hedge funds start buying crypto, and then crypto crashes. Let's say. And suddenly, you know, their value at risk they're, they're, um, that shoots up. So then, then they have to you, know, you have to get a contagion effect into other assets. The final point that I'll make, Weston, and I want to get your take on this is so in case we haven't you know, angered the, the, the Bitcoin uh, maximalists enough, um, I would say that the Bitcoin maximalists are correct in attacking the other coins because they correct they they correctly identify the other coins as a threat. It's kind of like SPACs. Like there's the first SPAC, let's say DraftKings, and it's a huge success. But then other coins, other SPACs spin out 
and suddenly there's a, a huge amount of supply on the market and not enough demand. We kind of seeing that with, with crypto. You know, I, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the other coins that, you know, arguably have real value would be doing better if it weren't for the Dogecoins and the Cum Rockets of the world. I think the ire at Elon Musk for pumping Dogecoin and going out of Bitcoin is, uh, is technically correct, I think. In, in terms of if they want to achieve their strategy of having, a, of having Bitcoin succeed, I think they are, they are right in that. I don't necessarily agree with them. But I don't know. Your closing thoughts, because we really run run over. Okay, uh, I'm going to tie it into this catalyst that everyone's missing. Um, CoinExchange.io. Does anyone remember what that is? If you don't know what that is, that is the catalyst for the sell-off for today. It is not the the. It is not China. It is not the PBOC. If you if your long case for Bitcoin was the PBOC was going to embrace it, you then yeah, you probably should have sold today. Um, that is not why we sold off. Okay, so CoinExchange.io uh, was some very shady um, exchange that existed back in the 2017 boom. Uh, they had a ton of these very weird, small, like, you know, um, you could call them shit coins, you could call them whatever they want to, um, that were like, you know, like less than a penny. One of those was Dogecoin. They went bust, um, and they have a lot of customers who did not pull their assets out. They didn't notify that they were, you know, um, allowed to withdraw their assets. Uh, Dogecoin of, you know, recently has gone up whatever tens of thousands of percent. And now suddenly they came out of nowhere on May 6th of this, um, of this year. So re just recently saying that as of yesterday, uh, they will be opening up the window, uh, window of time in which Customers can withdraw their coins and their assets from um, CoinExchange.io, and people who are sitting on I don't know tens of thousands or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of um, of uh, Dogecoin gains, they are now currently pulling them out. They have to the end of the month to do so. And my belief is that they will be pulling these out these assets out. They're going to have a mass liquidation of Dogecoin. That's going to lead to a mass liquidation of Crypto. That was something that I flagged for the last, I don't know, week or so. And so I said, look out specifically for this day. This is basically what ha what's been happening. Um, so when it comes to things like correlation and all that kind of thing, the reason that Dogecoin matters for Bitcoin is because uh, this is an, uh, an iteration of an idea from Chris Cole, the volatility trader, who said that, you know, it's possible that Bitcoin, what, you know, why do central banks allow Bitcoin, um, you know, globally to exist? And why do they allow for this whole ecosystem to exist and, and the spe speculation and all that? And it could be because they need to implement, you know, easy monetary policy. One of the, the negative side effects, the inevitable negative side effects of easy monetary policy is asset price inflation. So what this, um, this crypto space does is it allows for one or two trillion of that excess froth to be diverted away from stocks and from real estate and all that, and to go into this very benign asset. That's what I believe uh, the role that that Dogecoin um, plays for Bitcoin. Completely accidentally, completely unknowingly, but that's basically taking the excess froth out of Bitcoin, which helps people in the actual DeFi world and the you know the the the, the serious people who want to be taken seriously, who want to have credibility with Bitcoin and all that. Um, but when you have uh, Dogecoin that is at 30 billion um, in, uh, in AUM or in, in market cap, when that gets liquidated, you're going to see mass liquidations across the board, which is exactly what has been happening today. That was a catalyst for today. Um, not China, not the PBOC.
question. Um, you you can give me the dollar in exchange. That is a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal idea. I wish I could continue to analyze that with you. We could go on for hours, but I, you know, if we do, I'll be further in the doghouse with my producer than, than I already am. So we'll, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, you guys, if you like Weston's work, definitely check him out on the exchange, um, realvision.com slash exchange, right? Exchange.realvision.com. There we go. There we go. Exchange.realvision.com. And if you're watching this on realvision.com, thank you so much for being a member. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'm glad you watched it. But if you really want to get to so where the real action is, go to realvision.com. By the way, a final plug to uh, end our exponential age exploration that we've been doing over the past two weeks. Ral is going to be having a conversation with a Real Vision fan favorite and uh, hedge fund, former hedge fund manager, macroeconoclast, Hugh Hendry. So that is going to be streamed live at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, I believe, on Friday. And all members on realvision.com will be able to view it. And if you want to watch it and you're not a member, uh, you can sign up for $1 to get a two-week trial, and you'll be able to view that wrap-up video. Um, I've been corresponding with Hugh all this week, and I've been sending him Ral's thoughts. And I think there's a, there's a lot of stuff percolating there. So I think that's going to be a really exciting talk. So um, thank you so much, Weston, for joining uh, us, joining me. And thank you to everyone at home. Um, we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>